Hello and welcome back to Deviant Little Darlings. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And if you love hearing stories about all things taboo, scandalous, and out of this world, you are in the right place. Hello. Hello. Welcome to episode, I think this is 49. I think it is 49. And this episode, we've been trying to record for like two weeks, so I'm glad that we're here. <laughs> this is the cursed episode. We've had so many technical failures on my part. <laughs> both no, uh, both of us were having some things. There were quite a few tech problems, but here we are, ready for what is supposedly going to be a wonderful episode. We've been waiting for this story from Miss Olivia. Yes, and actually, the story. I feel like this story has been in at least my brain for a really long time and I'll explain it when I get into it but I have been waiting for a long time to to tell it to you and I'm so excited the build-up has been coming I mean I think we've talked about it in other episodes where you're like I'm so excited to tell you about this story um you've definitely said it to me multiple times so I'm super stoked I can't wait to see what's about to happen (laughs) me too is there anything else we want to cover in the intro oh um the big news of the day i don't think he'll listen maybe he'll listen to this but my brother shout out to my brother he got into law school today <gasps> congratulations Woo! james that is so exciting oh my, where is he exciting. going um he's going to pepperdine oh my gosh so that's is that zoe NCAA? 101 yeah but what part of california is that in uh it's like la so it's a couple hours oh, okay. away Oh my gosh, yeah. that is so exciting. Oh, I'm so happy for him. Big deal. Um, What's new with you? Um, What else? Not a whole lot. Um, My sister shared, well, she did our shout out on a work call the other day. And so oh, then yeah. I shared our, yeah, so I shared our link to everything. And now I'm getting a lot of coworkers being like, oh, I listen to your podcast. Oh. And it's so sweet. I'm very happy that people are listening. But I also am like, I don't remember. We've done almost 50 of these. And I'm like, I don't remember what I said. I hope I didn't say anything embarrassing. <laughs> but I had one coworker tell me, um, she listened to the episode where I talked about the Oxford Saloon. And she was saying that um, she has a really good friend who is kind of like, her friend tells her she's has like these psychic abilities and oh. it sounds almost like she's a medium but she like really doesn't want to be like she doesn't want to have that she's kind not of inviting e- that energy no okay. she does not want but it's like always around her like she can like see people always around her huh. so she doesn't like it but then mb my friend was like oh i'm gonna take her there and not tell her that it's haunted <gasps> and just see like what she says so oh my gosh I'm going to report back once I hear how how it goes. But Please do. Keep us yeah. updated on this saga. <laughs> I will. I yeah. Oh, uh, also, this is super unrelated, but just talking about ghosts. I just saw they're making a movie about the Queen Mary. And apparently oh, really? the cast and crew had some suspicious encounters when they were filming on board. So, Oh, my gosh. I bet. Is it like a big movie? Like, are there big names in it? Or is it just... I don't know. I literally just saw it like two minutes ago, um, and but I think it's coming out this month. Oh, okay. We should. So I guess watch it, it. I guess it's filmed, not filming. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll have to check it out. <gasps> oh my gosh, we have to do a spooky extravaganza movie night like we used to in college. <gasps> I would love to do that. 
we'll talk we'll we'll get something on the books maybe we live stream it and all of our fans can watch with us (laughs) (laughs) it'll be like your sister my dad uh uh, my across the street neighbor great party (laughs) it'll be fun you know i actually did get a request from two separate people um both named alex that they want to be live studio audiences next time we record are Um, they gonna comment so I was like, yeah, I was like, well, how do you foresee this happening like when they ask yeah. me? And uh, Ale- boy Alex said he wants to, ju- he's like, I don't even have to make a sound. I'll be quiet as a church mouse. I just want to like be in the room and hear you guys. And then maybe once we're done telling each other our stories and he was like, and then maybe Jacob can be on Katie's side. And then oh. when you guys are done with each story, we can tell you wh- what we think about it. Like, Cause you know how after the Wait. end we kind of like debrief a little bit. He's like, I want to, I want to talk about it too. And I thought Wait, that was that's cute. kind of a cute, like, um, it's <laughs> kind of a cute <laughs> development. I would actually really like to do that. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, cause there was that one time where he walked in on us recording and like yeah. was kind of tiptoeing around and obviously we edited it out, but then yeah. he was like <laughs> listening back to the episode, like smiling. And I was like, what are you li- listening for? He's like, I want to hear my appearance. And I was like, well, oh, no, we took it out. <laughs> there's no and appearance. He was, Sorry, He was Alex. really sad. He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I felt bad. No, we'll get him a, we'll get him a speaking role on the podcast. Yeah. 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 He, he didn't even really ask for it. He's like, I don't even have to say anything, but I'm like, well... Then that's just kind of weird. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be aw- uncomfortable. I'm trying to think of a, like a, a cute little name for that like experience. I'm thinking of some alliteration, like boyfriends and bad guys, boyfriends and booze, like scary, like ooh, mm, spooky. Yeah. Um, we'll think about it. You know, I think it would be a fun little, um, a little, a little switch up for our, our followers, our listeners. Yeah, we'll we'll brainstorm. We'll get creative. We'll take it to our marketing yeah. department. We'll work it out. <laughs> the market. If anyone the marketing has any suggestions, <laughs> feel free to email us. Yeah, <laughs> or DM us on Instagram or text at Deviant Little Darlings. <laughs> yeah, plug. Shameless plug. Okay, but what did girl Alex? How did she want to participate? Oh well, she also said it today. She was like, "Uh, can I be on your podcast?" Or I don't remember what she said. She was like can I be on it or like, can I like, can I be there when you record it or something? I don't remember. It was almost <laughs> the same thing. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like why? I didn't know. Is that a thing to me? I think I would just, I would make the podcast weird and awkward because I'd be like laughing or like really aware that there's someone else there. <laughs> and I, I just sound stupid. Um, but I think it'd be fun to, to do something. I think, it would be really fun. Maybe this is like a. I, I, I've had some requests as well. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, we should do so a, a little guest appearance every once in a while. I would kind of love that. I don't know. We, we'll have to talk about the how, how that'll look, but yeah. I would love to do that. <laughs> We're taking uh, requests, so. We are. There's no Reach rules out. here. We have no guidelines, rules, or, you know. You'd think we might after doing this for almost 50 episodes, but <laughs> we don't. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. We, I'm ready. Is it ready? Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. I'm so excited. So, Katie, um, yes. I I first heard this story on a podcast back in college where you and I met. Okay. And in case you forgot, that's where the that's glory where days. <laughs> and I'm telling you, this story was so shocking. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard it. I was at the gym 
are like I remember everything about it like the workout I was doing like <laughs> it's like a moment in time it's like time froze it's okay. like a major life event like when people say oh where were you when blah 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 I'm like I know where I was when I you heard the story on the stairmaster got it yeah <laughs> and then I went about my life and I like forgot all the details like the name and whatever but I just knew like generally what happened and then mm-hmm. I tried to look it up again and I could never find the story again. Like I never hmm. found the episode. I was I was like, oh, I thought it was this podcast, but I'm like, well, yeah. maybe, maybe a different podcast. Did. So I looked up every other podcast I've listened to their entire episode list of everything they've covered. I've like Googled huh. the gist of it. I've, I never found a Wikipedia page. I literally made a Reddit account to post onto <laughs> these like podcast subreddits to ask anyone if they knew what I was talking about and no one replied. Okay. Huh. I'm getting concerned because this is like not the first time this happened. Like when, <laughs> when the Long Island serial killer uh, was revealed this last couple weeks that it was mm-hmm. caught, I was like, oh my gosh, I should do a deep dive because I totally covered that on our podcast. Lo and behold, I, I never did. I have a full never memory did. of researching it and recording it and telling it to you. And that never happened. So then I'm like, I'm convinced I just made up this story. <laughs> it never existed. But then the other day I turned on a different podcast and my jaw dropped. I literally audibly gasped. I was alone in my apartment, just like, <gasps> and it was the story. So I knew I had to tell you finally. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm excited. This is my moment. Where am I in time? I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> Talking to <laughs> Olivia. This is my moment. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm totally overhyping it. But I just, for this one just really s- stuck with me. And maybe it will with you too. Maybe I've ruined it already by kind of overinflating no, it. But it doesn't I'm matter. Ready. Okay, so this is the story of the Porco family. Have you heard of it? It sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. Okay. So, Peter and Joan Porco lived in Del Mar, New York. They had two grown sons, Jonathan and Christopher. Uh, Peter was an appellate division court clerk in New York. Joan was a children's speech pathologist like you. <gasps> I know. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the sons were both in school. So Jonathan was at a Navy operations school where he became an officer and Christopher was at University of Rochester. So they sound like a very classic East Coast family, right? Like this, you yeah. know, they're working in something related to government with the courts and okay. they're all doing their school and stuff. Um, but all of this changes one day on Monday, November 15th, 2004. Peter Porco failed to attend work at the appellate court in Albany, New York, where he was the clerk. So mm. a New York state courts officer called a local police to go check on his house where he lived with his wife, Joan. And upon entering the two-story home at 36 Broccoli Drive in Del Mar, the officer discovered Peter's lifeless, blood-soaked body near the front door. <gasps> oh, no. Peter was attacked in the head with an axe. And they found his wife in bed also attacked in the head with an axe. (gasps) And this is the crazy, this is the part that's just so insane. Okay. So based on the crime scene, the police started to put together Peter's actions and whereabouts before and after the attack. Oh, no. Yeah. After. So Uh police determined that after 2 a.m., 
someone entered the home, disabled the alarm system, entered the garage where they found the Porco's axe, went upstairs to the main bedroom, attacked both Peter and Joan with the axe dozens of times in their heads, left the axe at the foot of the bed, left the house, cut the phone lines, smashed the security system panel outside, and disappeared. What? Yeah, so they can like figure out all that just looking at the scene. But then, like it does every morning, Peter's alarm goes off several hours after the attack. And that's when Peter gets up and gets out of bed. And how is this possible, you might ask? I don't know. Well, (laughs) okay, well, apparently, and this is somewhat of a theory, but it's what makes the story crazy. Um, When Peter was struck by the axe in the head, part of his brain remained functioning. And it's the part of human brains that are the most simple and kind of innate. And it recognizes patterns and routines, sort of like when you do the exact same thing every day and it feels like you're on Uh autopilot. So that's this part of your brain. And this is what was still functioning in Peter's brain, even though the rest of his brain was severely damaged. So without knowing what had happened, he's not even aware that he was bludgeoned with an axe. Peter gets up and starts going about the house doing his morning routine before work. Oh my gosh. So this is what I would always Google. And I'm like, man, head, axe, zombie, like, thing. And it just never, it never came back. I couldn't find anything. How could that not show up? I don't know. It's shocking. So based on the evidence around the house and the immense trail of blood coming from Peter's head as he walks around, we know that he turns off his alarm clock. He uses the bathroom in the primary bathroom. He goes downstairs. He makes breakfast. He unloads the dishwasher. He walks outside the house to grab the newspaper on the front steps. And some report that when he turned around to come back inside, he had let the door close and it accidentally locked him out. So he used a spare key under the front mat to come back inside. And then once inside, Peter collapses in the entryway near the stairs due to the insane amount of blood loss. And that's where he dies. Oh, my God. Yeah. And just really quickly. So there are actually two theories about how he's able to function this way. So one is the one I mentioned before about the routine function in your brain being intact. And those who believe that theory claim that it probably wasn't Peter who took and used the spare key. Um, It was probably more likely the killer who used it to enter the home because it wouldn't be like your routine to go find your spare key. So the second theory about how Peter could do all this is that the brain was actually mostly functional, but he was in such profound shock when his alarm went off that he hadn't processed what happened and like couldn't feel the pain. And Mm -hmm. so he still didn't know that he had been attacked. And this theory makes more sense that he would have been the one to use the spare key since it's, you know, more of a new element. Um, But we still don't know 100% if it was him or the killer who used the key because the only reason they know it was there is just because they found it like it was in the lock. So they don't know who would have used it. But anyways, so what what are your initial thoughts on this crazy? This is like shocking, uh, horrible, awful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's interesting though because I feel like I don't know if this is like something real that happened or like something I saw in a movie, but like I feel like there have been instances 
similar to this where like someone got like stabbed in the head and like they like went to the hospital and were like oh can you get this out of my head like that kind of thing yeah like I feel like things like that happen unfortunately right but it's just so wacky that the brain could like and like that the rest of his body could function yeah I know it reminds me of oh gosh what is that guy the the really classic like psychology case where he gets the metal rod through his head and he's like oh yeah yeah but the thing about this is that he's like brutally attacked multiple multiple times and to the point where his like their faces are completely disfigured like it they're brutal scenes like I don't even know how this person would be able to see and like go about Right. doing everything um so the, just the imagery of it is just like insane to me just emptying the dishwasher making cereal uh. and then the police just coming home and seeing the trail of blood and being like did this this guy just do that like that's cr- that's yeah. just insane <laughs> um so yeah so one of the tech detectives on this case was christopher bodish and he was downstairs with peter's body while the others were investigating the scene and he hears someone yell from upstairs that joan was upstairs in the bed still alive (gasps) so his wife was still alive so christopher bodish actually knew the porcos after they reported their laptop stolen two years prior and he was the detective on that case so he knew the porco family pretty well um, okay. He rushes upstairs to talk to Joan because uh, of the axe wounds and injuries to her face. Obviously, Joan can't speak at all, um, but they realize that she can still gesture. So they get the ambulance ready for her. But Christopher starts asking her questions about the crime because he knew that she might not make it much longer. And this is his only chance right. to talk to like the one only living witness. So this is what he asks. He says, can you hear me? And she nods. Yes. He asks, do you know the killer? And she nods, yes. <gasps> he says, was it a family member? She nods, yes. <gasps> he says, did Jonathan do this to you? She shakes, no. Did Christopher do this to you? She nods, yes. <gasps> and at that moment, Joan is rushed to the hospital and goes into a coma. Oh my gosh. Right. This so, is, the plot thickens. I know. It's shocking. Okay, so they start obviously looking for Chris, and where do they find him? Over 200 miles away at college. And so hmm. they call, and he hears the news, and he rushes home. He goes, he tries to go to the hospital. He ends up going to the police station where he gets questioned. And his alibi is that he was in his dorm, la- like dorm room lounge. Again, it's over 200 miles away all night. And he fell asleep there in the common area on the couch. So Hmm. this could easily be corroborated by any residents in the common area, right? Well, wrong, because when police ask Christopher's fraternity brothers, they say that they were all there staying up late in the common area until 3.30 in the morning. But Chris was never there. So it's like, that was not a good alibi. That doesn't add up, Chris. No, it's like if you're like try to sneak out of your house or something you're like oh i'm, I'm with so-and-so but then you like don't tell that person and then they're like yeah Ooh. and they're like no you aren't <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um police oh gosh i just lost my place again okay so police search his bright yellow jeep wrangler but there's no evidence and no blood so his toll pass record shows that he went through no tolls, which he would have had to go through in order to get to his parents' house. And police get kind of stumped 
Like, how could he have gotten 200 plus miles away without any evidence on his car and no toll records Mm -hmm. and then back to college? Um, Well, they check the college security footage and um, they see a video of his bright yellow Jeep leaving campus at 1030 p.m. on November 14th. Then they see him arrive back on campus at 8.30 a.m. on November 15th. And when they Uh see this footage, yeah, they realize his car was headed east. So they interviewed toll collectors on that route and confirmed the big yellow Jeep was seen going through a toll at 10.45 p.m. and again at 2 a.m., but he paid in cash. Uh So additionally, a neighbor reports seeing the yellow Jeep in the Porco's driveway the night of the murders when he was getting ready to go to work. So it sounds like Christopher tried to evade detection by paying cash tolls instead of using his toll pass. And they even found the pass hidden in the back of his car, like kind of under the seat. Oh yeah. So he like tried but he didn't consider the fact that he's in this super bright recognizable obnoxious yellow jeep that would have given him not inconspicuous yeah uh plus there were dirt marks and he had a bumper sticker that said w2004 on the car that made it completely identifiable and even though they couldn't see his license plate in the footage they like could see his bumper stickers and like yeah that's the car (laughs) Um, But when confronted, Christopher complains that he just moved his car off campus since he can't park overnight. Uh, But that doesn't explain why he was seen at home and out driving around 2 a.m. Right. So with that, Christopher is officially charged with the murder of his father and attempted murder, 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 attempted murder of his mother. Ooh. So it sounds like an open and shut case, right? Well, right when they're getting ready to prosecute, Joan wakes up from her coma. So police. Yeah. So she's, she's awake. Police rush to the hospital room to see her, how she's doing and to confirm her original statement, you know, the nod that led them to Christopher. But this time when asked again and she can speak, she says, Oh no, Christopher did not do this. My son would never do something like this. Um, huh. So now, there's no star witness testimony. They don't have any evidence, right? Because right. all they see is just this. They have the picture of the car, but there's nothing in the car. There's no blood. There's nothing. Right. So Joan has no recollection of the attack uh, or even of nodding to the police when asked about the attacker. She turns against the police and basically says, shame on you for manipulating me when I'm in a traumatic situation. Leave my son alone. <gasps> So, you know, like her family's gone through enough. Her husband is dead. And now they're saying that her brain injury does kind of invalidate the original head nod statement because she was obviously not in her right mind. She can't even remember it. She was in and out basically of a coma. Unless now she has brain damage and now she doesn't remember. Or she doesn't want to. (gasps) <gasps> what I'm thinking. Okay. So Chris gets out of jail on bail and his defense team gets to work. They identify a fingerprint on the phone box where the cord was cut that didn't belong to Chris. And the evidence of the night was all circumstantial. There was no print, DNA, hair, proof, anything that Chris was in the house at all or that his car was there other than the neighbor's testimony. So the defense sticks to the story that Chris was moving his car and then was at college all night. Um, and that's the same thing with the tolls. It's not like they, because they didn't have the toll pass. The only thing that they mm-hmm. had were 
people saying, oh, I saw a yellow Jeep, like at that time, right. the, the toll collectors. Right. So the police have to go forward with their case, but need to explain why Christopher would do this. Now that they don't have a witness, they really need a motive and opportunity. So their key evidence is that when the killer broke in, they entered the alarm key code to disable it, which indicates hmm. that the killer must have known the code beforehand and therefore was familiar with the family. Also, how the killer got in is in question since we don't know if the spare key was used by the killer or by Peter. So they believe that Chris smashed the security alarm keypad after the killings to make it look like that's how a burglar got in. But what he didn't know was that the records would still be able to pull proof that the code was entered when he came in. So the prosecution next goes after Chris's character. And the police look back at the burglaries the Porcos reported two years earlier of their laptops. And they find that Christopher had actually staged the burglaries and stolen the laptops and a camera from his parents. And police go to California to retrieve one of the laptops that Chris stole and then ended up selling on eBay. And the police (laughs) (laughs) freeze both Christopher and Jonathan's eBay accounts. And he finds that Chris and Jonathan shared a home address in Del Mar, which is why the, the selling or whatever was traced back to both of them. Um, but the address was used basically for fraud where Chris was quote unquote selling these stolen items to customers, but then never actually sending them except for like one, that laptop, I guess, because when people would send him the money, he would then pose as his brother, Jonathan and tell customers that Chris had died and could no longer deliver the items, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is, oh, A bit extreme. Um, And looking into it, Jonathan was never involved in the scheme at all. It was all Chris. So they start using this as proof of his antisocial behavior. So police start looking further into Chris's life and his financial situation and find that before these murders, things were not going well for him at all. His college Mm. friends and frat brothers all described Chris as this really rich kid from a wealthy Connecticut family where he had a Vermont lodge and all this insane money. He had all these estates, basically. Um, He would pay for their parties and tell everyone about his family's extravagant estates in all these different areas, Um, (sighs) none of which was true. And he was not the classic. Yeah, compulsive liar. He was not a classic everyday college student that his family framed him as. You know, it's like, oh, yes, our son Chris is at, you know, the school, Mm -hmm. all this stuff. Um, Instead, he was failing out of college and in horrible financial debt with just like so much going on. So police find emails from Joan to Chris condemning him for his grades and flunking out of school. The emails are harsh with Joan saying things like, Quote, you just left and we can't believe our eyes as I look at your interim grade report. You know what they say, three strikes and you're out. Explain yourself, end quote. While the subject line was failing grades, you did it again. Ooh. Ouch. But hey, that's tough love. It's tough love. He, yeah. And as we keep reading, you might see why she's fed up because Chris emails back and he's blaming the school registrar office and says that there was a mistake. He never got a grade lower than a B and you know, you, 
you can tell that keeping up the image of success is really important to him. He mm-hmm. like cannot admit any part of his failing. And in fact, Chris forges a transcript from Hudson Valley Community College in order to get back into the University of Rochester. So he's just scamming and conning everyone one after another. Jeez. As for Chris's financial state, emails also reveal that Peter Porco caught his son forging his signature to take out a car loan to buy that ugly Jeep Wrangler (laughs) and lists Peter as a co-signer. He also does it when returning to school and taking out a $31,000 loan to pay for tuition when he was readmitted with the false transcript. So he covered this up with his parents by saying the school was actually paying for his tuition because a professor lost his final exam the year before, which is what led to the grade mistake. And so this is all part of their apology, like letting him back in school. We're going to cover your tuition. Again, not his fault. Nothing's his fault. Oh, of course. Yeah. And then Peter learns about the school loan fraud two weeks before the murder happens. And he writes an email to Chris saying, quote, did you forge my signature as a co-signer? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. I'm calling Citibank this morning to find out what you have done. And I'm going to tell them I am not to be on it as a co-signer, end quote. So the next day, Peter then learns about a car loan that Chris just took out after receiving the first email and Peter writes, Oh <laughs> yeah. He says, quote, I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability. And that applies to the Citibank college loan. If you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loan End quote, the email concluded quote, we may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. End quote. Oh, So as you can imagine, a really hard place to be in for Peter and Joan Porco. Their son is clearly doing all the wrong things and they want him to do right. They believe in him. They still love him. They think that he's, you know, he's on the wrong path, but he can do better. But they also want to protect him and his future. So I feel like it must be really hard for them. Um, Police also find that Chris set up a meeting with a financial advisor before the murder, claiming he was about to come into hundreds of thousands of dollars from a family member, likely implying, yeah, that he will be receiving his parents' life insurance policies before they were even dead. And next, police look into Chris's character and get testimonies. Uh, So police can... uh, contended that Christopher Porco's behavior was consistent with a diagnosis of psychopathy or sociopathy to similar, hmm. though not identical disorders characterized by pathological deception, scamming and fr- defrauding others and lack of conscious or remorse. And Peter's coworker also came forward and said that Peter confided in him before the murders and said that he believed his son might be a psychopath. <sighs> yeah. Oh, but still, we do not have any physical evidence of Christopher even being in the home or having blood in his car. But police say right. that this also might be explainable because apparently Chris had a job at a veterinary clinic where he would clean up after surgeries, making him an expert in cleaning blood. Oh, smokes. Yep. Yeah. So Chris's trial is officially held in Orange County because the case is so sensational on the East Coast that they couldn't get a good jury like everyone had already heard about it it's like basically a zombie you know what i mean like this is just such a crazy case right so chris's defense tried painting um 
the Bethlehem Police Department in a bad light, saying that they were incompetent as heavy crime was so uncommon in the area, um, so they were not equipped or prepared to handle an investigation of this size. They also introduced another theory. Apparently, Peter Porco's uncle, Frank Porco, was a captain in the, I don't know how to pronounce this, Bonanno or Bonanno crime family in New York City. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And uh, Frank, his nickname in this whole crime ring was actually the fireman because he used to be a firefighter, um, which the defense then connected back to the fireman axe, which was the murder weapon. So this was kind of their like pointing at someone else like, hey, we are looking at Chris. There's no evidence. But why don't we look at this guy? But it, it was not a flushed out defense. So... The first responders who saw Joan nod when asked if Christopher Christopher was the killer and several other fraternity brothers of Chris who said Chris was not home that night all took the mm-hmm. stand. His brother Jonathan, Jonathan was also questioned and he had a cold, icy demeanor towards Chris the whole time. <sighs> Joan finally took the stand and said her son was innocent. And there's all, like she, there's just so many videos and footage of her holding Christopher's hand and just fully standing by him so on december 12 2006 christopher porco was convicted of murder in the second degree of his father and attempted murder of his mother judge jeffrey barry sentenced porco to 50 years to life on each each count totaling a minimum of 50 years in prison judge barry was quoted as saying Quote, I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15th is something that could happen again, end quote. And then Porco will be eligible for parole in December of 2052. So that's quite a while. Uh, Chris has attempted to appeal his conviction, conviction, sorry, I'm like, can't talk today, appeal his conviction, but the New York Court of Appeals has declined each time, maybe because that's where his father worked. So, like, those are all his co-workers? I don't know. Oh, my um, gosh. But, yeah, images can be found online of Chris and his mom, Joan, just standing arm in arm before his trial. Um, she stands by his side, and he she continues to claim that he's innocent. And that is the story of Peter Porco and Joan Porco and the whole Porco family and the man who got hit in the head with an axe and walked around his house for, like, an hour and made cereal. That part <laughs> itself is shocking. But then when you add in, like, the family component, yeah, holy moly. Isn't it called, like, patricide when someone in your family kills you? Or maybe when your kid kills you? Yeah, there are so many different... um, Who took that class? Was it, it like, Grace or something? Someone we went to school with took a class, and they had to learn all the different names of, like, when you kill someone in your family. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't think it was me, but I don't know what, I don't even know what class that would have been. Like a law either, class? But I remember, I remember someone sitting in the living room with us being like infanticide, patricide, like <laughs> all the different, if this, if they're of this age, it's that one. Like there is so many different ones. Jeez. Maybe it was like a psych class or something. Yeah, probably. Anyways, I didn't take any psych classes in college because I already did that. (laughs) Holy moly. Yeah, that's shocking. If I had to, I mean, I'm no expert, um, but I do feel very compelled that it was likely him. Um, 
And I feel like maybe two th- two thoughts. Either that the mom, the brain damage, like I said earlier, like her brain was damaged enough that when she woke up, she was like, oh my gosh, no. Or she is like intentionally trying to forget because like her her family didn't look the same anymore. Or, like her husband was gone. All she had left was her sons. Like I can see it going both ways, you know? Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I think that she's also like it is so much shock and mm-hmm. you don't want it to be your son. You don't want that to be the case. Oh, of and course not. You can tell like even before this happened when he was you know, doing all the fraud and deception and, you know, they were trying to steer him in the right path, but they were also trying to protect him. Mm -hmm. And I think that she still has that instinct of like really wanting to protect him while also like you said, like protecting her, her own perception of the family. So I don't know if she really remembers or not. Um, but I, I hope for her sake that she doesn't remember because I think that would be hardest to live with is like knowing you saw it and then also being like no no it can't be that that's a really devastating story I know I'm laughing but it's not funny like no it but I think the part that just that stopped me in my tracks where I was like I know where I was when I heard the story was just the portion of the dad doing his morning routine and getting Mm -hmm. up and just being basically he has almost no face and he's just I don't know how many years you have to work for that morning routine to be like ingrained in you like that because every day when my alarm goes off it's like (laughs) it's like the first time it ever happened in my life and I'm shocked I'm like oh my god what like I have to get up I have to brush my teeth this is crazy but no but I can kind of imagine like sometimes you know when you like wake up the wrong way and it's like where am I what am I doing like that kind of thing like if you have that on top of like the most traumatic brain injury you could possibly have like I could kind of imagine it the brain is incredible the brain Um, is wild yeah yeah man this is a crazy story yeah did you ever like when you were a kid or something wake up like you go to sleep and then you wake up in the middle of the night, but you think it's the morning. You like get up and like start making breakfast because you. Oh, for sure. Like you're getting like, ready for school. Um, I feel like it'll happen t- to me more where like I'll take like a nap and then I wake up and I'm like, I think it's like morning or something. And I'm like, yeah. holy sh- smokes, what's happening? This happened the other day where I like got up and I was like, oh my gosh, it's like five o'clock. I have to go to get ready for, for work. <laughs> and I like go to the bathroom, and, like start getting ready. And I was like, do I normally get up at five o'clock? And then I'm like, I don't think so. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go back to bed. Like, why would um, I do that? Yeah. But I just, yeah, the imagery of seeing someone just going around their house like that. And and so, yeah, he only like died because of the blood loss. So I wonder if he right. just stayed in bed like Joan, like maybe he would have survived. It was just, he was losing Man. all this blood when he was walking around and doing his little routine. That is so horrible. It's so sad, but I'm glad I got to finally tell it to you because I, this case has been in my head and I didn't know any of the details. So I couldn't tell anyone about it. Cause I'm like, (laughs) I don't know. Someone got hit with an ax and then they walked around and like, that's not as compelling of a story. So I'm glad that was finally done. (laughs) Everyone listening, take note of where you are, what you're doing, who you're with, because you just heard this story and it was a pivotal (laughs) moment in Olivia's life. So 
by golly, it's going to be a pivotal moment in all of our lives. <laughs> yeah. And good luck looking it up later because apparently you can't find this story online unless you specifically look up Peter Porco or Christopher Porco. Everything else, it doesn't exist. It's been maybe that Joan scrubbed wild. it from the internet. She doesn't want it out there. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Honestly, maybe there's a bigger conspiracy here. Yeah. Ooh. Interesting. Ooh. Anyways, Katie. Yes. What do you have for me today? Well, Olivia, my story was also pivotal in my life. Um, so that's a fun little connection we have. I'm excited to talk about it. It's not, I feel like a lot of people know the story, but it's something that just, I'm really interested in. This is going to spoil it really fast, but have you ever seen the movie Escape from Alcatraz? No, I have not. Do you know the story of Escape from Alcatraz? Um. Oh my gosh, I do because there's a really good Netflix show that I just watched and it like did an overview of it in one of the episodes. Oh, okay, rock on. So I'm going to be telling you the the story. I, I've said it already, but like this is just something that since I was like the babyest little girl, I thought it was super compelling. And I'm going to try to add some details that even I didn't know all the details when I was looking it up. Yeah, I'm so excited. You know, you're not the first person to say this. When I was watching that Netflix show, it's called yeah. Unexplained. It's really good. But I was watching it with Alex and he said something similar. Where he was like, oh, I, I remember when I heard about this, like at this time. And he was, it uh-huh. was just so shocking to me. Like I just like always thought about it. So, yeah, yeah. I think about We're- it a lot, actually. I'm not sure <laughs> why. <laughs> Um, there's a few movies about it. Um, there was like a, there was like a map in like Call of Duty that was like Alcatraz. So like, it just follows me everywhere. God. Ooh. Um, anyway, I didn't play Call of Duty. I'm not a, I'm not <laughs> good at those kind of girl. games. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I could be. Um, okay. So Alcatraz was a federal prison that opened in 1934. And the thing that was kind of special about it was that it was designed specifically to hold prisoners that like other prisons could not. Like the other prisons couldn't handle it. So they went to Alcatraz. Um, so of course you can imagine these are extra dangerous criminals. They're criminals who continuously escaped from other prisons. Um, the National Parks Foundation called it a super prison meant to keep the worst criminals away from cu- communication with the outside world. Why was okay. the National Parks Department weighing in? <laughs> I think because <laughs> now they have now they are the now they own the land. Oh, OK. I'm They're like, calling it after <laughs> the fact. <laughs> it's not like Yellowstone. Just be like, oh, yeah, that's a really good prison. They're really good at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um this place was nicknamed The Rock. No Dwayne Johnson, um, but it's called <laughs> The Rock. It held some really notorious criminals. We've got Al Capone, um, a man named Robert Stroud, a.k.a. The Birdman. He was a really notorious murderer who also kept oh. pet birds at the prison. Um, and then there was a man named George Kelly Barnes, a.k.a. Machine Gun Kelly. Not the one dating Megan Fox, but now that I know <laughs> that he chose his name after a murderer, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, yeah, I don't know how much of a fan I am of Machine Gun Kelly 2.0. Not Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, that's okay. You know what? Whatever. I respect it. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Alcatraz is supposed to be inescapable. 
It's on an island and the whole like prison is the island. It's just off the coast of San Francisco and the water temperature is usually in the 50s to 60s. That's cold. Like that's really effing cold. Okay, but my fatal flaw is that every time someone says that, I'm like, it's 50 degrees all the time outside. Like I can be in a light jacket. Like how is it that cold? You know? It's not the same. <laughs> how is it not the same? The air is around me. The water's are, it's the same temperature. It's not the same, Olivia. Uh, like sometimes the ocean will be like 69 here and I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't go in. It's so cold." Burr. Yeah, that's um, I wouldn't die, but like, you know what I mean. That's why that's why I'm like my ego is overinflated. I'm like, I'm from Seattle. <laughs> I could handle. I could swim from Alcatraz. I could handle it. Let's test it out. Let's do like a little <laughs> polar bear plunge, Olivia. Oh my gosh. Um Okay, fine. If the if the temperature doesn't compel you, the currents in the bay are notoriously strong and it is home to at least 10 species of sharks. Okay, you got me. I think that I, okay. will, not be, I will not be making it across. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. So <laughs> now we've set the scene. Let's meet the three men who may have escaped the inescapable prison. <gasps> Woo! So we've got John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris. So John and Clarence Anglin were brothers. John was born in 1930, and Clarence was born in 1931, almost exactly a year apart. So they were two of 14 children. You can imagine with their similarity in age that they were pretty inseparable. They were also skilled swimmers. And according to a 1993 Florida newspaper article, the brothers amazed their siblings by swimming in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan as ice still floated on its surface. Oh my gosh. So they're pretty hardcore swimmers is the moral of the story. Um, Clarence was first caught for a crime at 14 years old when he broke into a service station In the 1950s, the two brothers began robbing banks and businesses that were closed to ensure there were no injuries, um, and that they reported that the only weapon they ever used was a toy gun. So, like, you know, they were softies. They just wanted some coin, okay? Right. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) On January 17th, 1958, John, Clarence, and their other brother, Alfred, robbed the Bank of Columbia in Columbia, Alabama. They were caught, and all three were sentenced to 35 years in prison. After multiple attempts to escape from prison, John was sent to Alcatraz in October of 1960 as inmate AZ-1476. Clarence was sent in January 1961 as inmate AZ-1485. Their brother Alfred, who robbed the bank with them, was actually killed in an escape attempt from a prison in 1964. So then there's the other man, Frank Morris. He was born in 1926, so he was a few years older than the brothers. Um, But he was orphaned at the age of 11, and he was convicted of his first offense at 13. He was arrested for a variety of crimes in his teenage years, including possession of narcotics to armed robbery. He was arrested for grand larceny, car theft, and armed robbery in Miami Beach, where he for which he served time but he escaped from the louisiana state penitentiary for serving when he was serving time for bank robbery but then he was recaptured a year later he was committing another burglary um so then he was sent to alcatraz in january of 1960 and he was inmate number az1441 so 
a lot of escape attempts. I just like can't even fathom how like you could escape from prison. But these guys did. This was like the thing to do, I guess. You were like a bad guy. You escaped from prison. You went back to bad guying and then you went back to prison. Right. Do you think, okay, if you were in prison and you knew that there was no way you could get out, like you were in there for life, no parole. Mm -hmm. Do you think you would try to escape? I don't know. I don't know. I have a hard time thinking about this because like, I feel like I have a really strong moral compass. So like I wouldn't be in that position anyway, but if I was, (laughs) I feel like my moral compass would be different. Like I probably, okay. Yeah. Maybe I would try to escape. You're 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 convicted. You didn't do it. You're, you're falsely (gasps) like you're innocent, but you got sentence, no possibility of parole life sentence <gasps> no appeals you're you're done with options there's in no that other way that's super depressing <laughs> um <laughs> you know maybe i would try like just because i'm inspired by this story yeah i think it would be a lot harder but i would hatch a pl- i would attempt to hatch a plan whether you i know, actually went through with it i don't know I think that you you would be successful because of all the people I know, you're very crafty. Oh, thank you. So I, think you I do, do like it. to I do like to be crafty. I like to throw some things together. So Yeah. I think but the the thing that I think I would always think in my mind is that like if I get caught, then I definitely committed a crime. Like I'm committing <laughs> a crime to get out of the situation. That's so like true. what's ah man, that's tough. What would you do? I don't know. I uh, I feel like I think the same thing where it's like, oh, I wouldn't want to break. Like, maybe if I'm really, really good, they'll let me go. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, like I don't, maybe know. I I just don't think it works that hard. way. Yeah. <laughs> that's so sad. Well, that's <laughs> probably what these guys were thinking. Yeah. They're like, this they is probably the weren't I got to do it. <laughs> um, the important thing about Frank Morris is that his IQ was 133. Now, most people have an IQ between 85 and 115, and only 2% of the population score above 130. So this guy is really smart, like really, really, really smart. Um, It makes me want to take an IQ test because like, I'm kind of curious. I always wanted to. I would love to know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't know. Maybe it'll crush my confidence. <laughs> I don't know. I think we'll see. We'll talk. I like don't even know where you find an IQ. I don't want to like pay for one, but I don't feel like I would get a very legit one for free. Is so. there like a BuzzFeed quiz IQ test? Because I could do that. Probably. There's probably like gifts in it. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably legit. Um, yeah. Anyway. The thing that these three men have in common, the kind of thing that that bonded them, is that they were slippery. They all liked to make an escape. And their cells in Alcatraz were all right next to each other. So they were buddies. They were like bunk buddies. It's kind of giving Katie and Olivia freshman year of college. Like, they were the best of friends. Um... They were also next to an inmate named Alan West. He was in prison for car theft and then attempting to escape. He was transferred to Alcatraz in 1957, inmate AZ-1335. Coincidentally, all four of these men also knew each other from previous incarcerations in Florida and Georgia. 
So they were like a little a little a little guy group. The plan begins hatching when a different inmate, a man named Clarence Carnes, befriends Frank Morris. And Clarence Carnes had been a part of the Alcatraz Uprising or the Battle of Alcatraz 14 years earlier. Now, this was an escape attempt by armed convicts, during which two prison officers were killed, along with three prisoners. Fourteen officers and one other uninvolved convict were injured. And this is like a story for another time. Like, I'm talking a deep dive. It's full of escape planning, hostage taking, and more. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah, it's actually really interesting. But the important thing to our specific story is that Clarence knew about access tunnels behind the cells and with this information a very big brain and the help of alan west frank morris discovered ventilation shafts in the access tunnels that connected to the roof Ooh. Ooh. so the four buddies frank the anglin brothers and alan begin planning an escape and if you don't already know they came up with a very elaborate plan So Alan knew that the sea spray in the air, like they're on an island, there's a lot of like ocean winds, a lot of ocean corrosion. It had weakened the cement, so they were able to use spoons from the kitchen and a homemade drill that they made from the motor of a broken vacuum. And they used these to loosen the air vents at the back of their cells. This way they could remove like an entire section of the wall. Um, And then when they created the holes, they could just like put a suitcase in front of it or like they painted cardboard to make it look like the wall. Um, And Frank Morris played the accordion each night to mask the noise of their work. So they were sneaky guys. Very sneaky. Very smart. This is why I think you'd be good at it. You're very crafty. You could paint (laughs) cardboard to look just like a wall. I could paint cardboard. It would be... That's my special skill. That's my fun fact. (laughs) I think I could escape from prison (laughs) in like 1960. I could definitely do it. Yeah. Um, So they made their way into these access shafts. And in that area, they were able to climb onto the roof of their cell block. So like it's like still inside the building. Like they're not on the roof yet, but like their block had a roof. I don't really know why. It seems like poor planning, but whatever. Um. So on top of this roof, they set up a secret workshop. So they would take turns keeping watch for the guards using a periscope that they constructed. Um, but here they used both stolen and donated materials to build what they needed to escape. And so now the stuff I'm going to tell you is from the FBI's website. So this is the real deal. The men used more than 50 raincoats to create makeshift life preservers and a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft. And the raft was carefully stitched together and hardened with the hot steam pipes in the access shaft. They also altered a musical instrument to act as a pump to inflate the raft, and they also built wooden paddles. The authorities found an issue of Sports Illustrated in their cells, which contained a section on low-cost ways to enjoy water sports, which is where the group was presumed to have gotten the knowledge to create these items. They're just using their resources. I don't think that it said in Sports Illustrated, to do that (laughs) i don't i don't know if that's what they meant (laughs) yeah they probably didn't think this is what was going to happen um unless it was a coded message who knows um so they had all their materials but the men had to buy themselves some time to actually make their escape so they created dummy heads out of paper mache 
uh, like a mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. And they painted them with flesh tone paint. I hate the word flesh. Um, <laughs> I do too. But this was flesh toned paint from the maintenance mm-hmm. shop. And they added hair from the barbershop floor. So then they piled like towels and clothes under the blankets and put the dummy heads on the pillows so that it looked like they were sleeping when guards walked by. So it's basically like the plot of like a teenage rom-com where they're like sneaking out of their room at night and they just like make a dummy so their parents don't know they're gone, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Classic. (laughs) Something we all did in our youth. Absolutely. We all just quickly (laughs) whipped up a paper paper mache head. (laughs) <laughs> super normal yeah super normal yeah um, you did it hmm, weird <laughs> it's what we did all the time to sneak out from house mom kathy oh my gosh yeah <laughs> oh kathy love her um so this is obviously a very elaborate plan it took about eight months to like get everything ready and on june 11th 1962 the men began their escape but alan west hit a little snag so some of the articles that i read said that his hole was like too small for him wikipedia says that he had used some cement to reinforce the concrete around his hole and it hardened and like fixed everything back in place um but the moral of the story is that he couldn't get out of his cell with the speed and stealth that the other men could so they left him behind and eventually he just like went to sleep like accepting defeat he went to sleep but he is the reason that we know many of these details today because he fully cooperated with the investigation. So he was not charged for his role in the escape. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So the other three men got into the corridor, grabbed their supplies, and climbed pipes 30 feet to the ceiling where they went out through the top shaft of a ventilator onto the roof. From there, they shimmied down the bakery smokestack climbed over the fence, snuck to the northeast shore of the island where they launched their raft. The escape was discovered the next morning, and multiple agencies began an extensive search of the area. During the 10-day search, a packet of letters sealed in rubber and related to the men was discovered, so it included names, addresses, and photos of the Anglin's friends and relatives. They found some paddle-like pieces of wood and shreds of raincoat material in the water. And they found a deflated life jacket made from raincoat material um, washed up on a beach. But no other items were found. So now, the mystery begins. Ooh, as I've established, the waters around the island are pretty treacherous. So, the official FBI stance is that the men died that night as they attempted escape. So this is their statement. For the 17 years we worked on the case... No credible evidence emerged to suggest the men were still alive, even in the U.S. or overseas. And they specifically note that the plan was for the men to steal clothes in a car once on land, but there were no thefts like this reported, even with the high-profile nature of the case. Their families also appeared unlikely to have the financial means to support the escape attempt. So the FBI officially closed its case on December 31st, 1979, and the U.S. Marshal Service continues to investigate in the event the men survived. Now, this case has captivated the world. There's movies about it. There's conspiracies about it. And most importantly, there are a lot of swims conducted annually where participants swim from the island to San Francisco. Oh and my it's gosh. doable. And it's safe with proper support, right? So thousands of people compete in these swims each year, 
like including me i told you i could do it <laughs> exactly <laughs> like i'll see you there this summer let's yeah. do it <laughs> it's funny because one of my mom's fr- like best friends lives in san francisco and i we were visiting when i was a kid and i remember she said to me she was like I think they escaped and they're just like living their best life down in Mexico. And that is like what always stuck with me. I think that was probably the first conspiracy theory I ever heard in my life. This story is apparently deeply personal for me because this is what started it all, people. <laughs> this was the creation of the deviant little darling in my soul. Oh my gosh. I love it. Where were you and what were you wearing when your mom said that? Or your mom's friend? I you? was in San Francisco on the beach. Who knows what I was wearing? Probably something my mom dressed me in. <laughs> Probably limited to <laughs> if it's that Maybe age. I had like some Britney sparkles in the hair. Like who yeah. knows? Oh, so, I love it. Many of you may have heard that part of the story, but I never like took it upon myself to go into the conspiracies until now. So I'm just going to talk about them qu- kind of quickly. Yes. So please do. There have been a variety of conspiracies, evidence, evidence, and claims that have been made over the years. So, beginning with the assumption that they survived and that their raft was successful. That's just keep that. That's what we're starting with. That's the starting mm-hmm. point. Right. So, in 2003, MythBusters tested out how feasible it would have been to escape the island on a raft, and they used the same materials and tools and decided that it was in fact possible. And then a 2014 study of the ocean currents by scientists at Delft University concluded that if the prisoners left Alcatraz at 11.30 p.m. on June 11th, they could have made it to Horseshoe Bay, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and that any debris would have floated in the direction of Angel Island, which is consistent with where the paddle and belongings were actually found. But they say that if they left before or after that time... um, the tides and currents were such that their chances of survival were slim. So I'm thinking in my heart, they left exactly at 11:30 PM. <laughs> um, and then in 2011, a national geographic documentary called vanished from Alcatraz reported that contrary to the FBI report, a raft was discovered on angel Island the day after the escape with footprints heading away from it. Also a blue Chevy was reported stolen the same day, which is corroborated by local newspapers. Later that day, 80 miles east of San Francisco, a driver reported that he had been forced off the road by three men in a blue Chevy. (gasps) Interesting. So the next possibility is that they had help. It wasn't all up to their raft, okay? This is like another theory. So there was a man named Robert Chechi. He was a police officer in San Francisco, and he reported that he saw a, quote, illegal boat in the bay near Alcatraz at 1 a.m. on the night of the escape. The boat then left and went under the Golden Gate Bridge, which led to speculation that the prisoners may have had outside help, like someone picked them up on their little boat, right? Another um, thought about their them receiving help was a man named Bud Morris, who claimed to be Frank Morris's cousin. He reportedly delivered envelopes of money to Alcatraz guards as, like, bribes on eight or nine occasions prior to the escape. He then said that he met his cousin face-to-face in San Diego after the escape. His daughter, who was eight at the time, recalls meeting dad's friend Frank. And then there were a number of supposed sightings of the men in the next few decades— 
So the FBI received a call in 1967, so that's about five years later, from a man who was claiming to have known Frank Morris for 30 years. They were classmates, and he bumped into him in Maryland, describing him as having a small beard and mustache, but he refused to give further details. And then Mama Anglin, so the mom of the two brothers, she actually received flowers anonymously every Mother's Day until she passed away in 1973. And at her funeral, two very tall, quote, women in heavy makeup attended. In 1989, when their father died, two strangers in beards showed up to the funeral. They stood in front of the casket, cried, and then left. So interesting seems a little suspicious if you ask me definitely in the 60s and 70s federal officials report like six or seven reported sightings of the anglin brothers in north florida and georgia in 1989 a woman a woman called a tip line to report that a photo of clarence anglin matched a man who lived on a farm near mariana florida another woman also recognized clarence saying he lived near near mariana Um, And she was able to identify his eye color, height, and other physical features. Another witness claimed that a sketch of Frank Morris looked like the man she saw, looked like a man she saw in the Mariana area. So I think it's really interesting that there's just all these sightings in this one specific area. Totally. Most notably, kind of the one that I think a lot of people know about is a supposed photograph of the Anglin brothers in Brazil in 1975. So a friend of the family, Fred Brizzy, claimed to have seen them in Rio in 1975. And there's a photo of two men standing next to a termite mound. They're both wearing like 70s shirts, really classic. They've got these collars, these big patterns. They both have like horrible 70s hair and beards. Uh, (laughs) They've got the flow going. (laughs) They're both wearing sunglasses. So forensic experts working for the family confirmed the photo was taken in 1975 and said that the men were more than likely the Anglins, although the condition of the photo, as well as the fact that they were wearing sunglasses, made it kind of difficult to be definitive. But a retired U.S. Marshal, he, who's a man who once headed the investigation, his name was Art Roderick, he called the photo the best actionable lead we've had. But he suggests that it may have been a misdirection to steer the investigation away from the actual whereabout of the Anglins. In January of 2020, an Irish agency called IDENTV that specializes in AI used facial recognition and they concluded for sure that the men in the photo were John and Clarence Anglin. Apparently, also, this is where it kind of starts to get me. Supposedly, apparently, so they say, the escapees have actually made contact with people themselves pretty frequently. So a day after the escape, a man claiming to be John Anglin called a lawyer in San Francisco to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshals, but the lawyer refused and the caller hung up the phone like immediately. And that's it. That's the end of that story. I was like, hello. Why do you think he would want to meet the U.S. Marshals? I think he was probably trying to give himself up. Maybe they had like a bad like night in the water, like something went wrong. Who knows? But... The lawyer probably thought it was like a prank call and was like, no, get out of here. (laughs) Anyway, the Anglin family occasionally received postcards over the years um, that were presumably from the brothers. Most of them were unsigned, but one was signed Jerry. Another one was signed Jerry and Joe. They also received a Christmas card in 1962 saying, to mother from John, Merry Christmas. 
and the handwriting was verified as the Anglin brothers. However, none of the letters were postmarked, and therefore it could not be determined when they were delivered. In 2018, the FBI confirmed the existence of a letter allegedly written by John Anglin and received by the San Francisco Police Department in 2013. The writer shared that Frank Morris died in October 2008 and was buried in Alexandria under a different name, and that Clarence Anglin died in 2011. His purpose in writing the letter, he said, was to negotiate his surrender in exchange for medical treatment of his cancer. The letter's authenticity was deemed inconclusive. But this is what it says. It says, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. And then it goes on to say, If you announce on TV that I will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention, I will write back to let you know exactly where I am. This is no joke. The writer of the letter says he spent many years after his escape from Alcatraz living in Seattle. Oh my Hmm. gosh, what? Yeah. Interesting. I know, everyone loves Seattle. How can you not? The Emerald City. (laughs) Is that what they call it? Yeah. (laughs) He also mentions that he lived in North Dakota for eight years and currently lives in Southern California. Did he mention Brazil at all? He doesn't say. So maybe it was a misdirection. In a statement to KPIX 5, the U.S. Marshal Service writes, there is absolutely no reason to believe that any of them would have changed their lifestyle and become completely law-abiding citizens after this escape, which is like kind of a good point. But I mean, when you make an escape that monumental, like what else are you going to do? Like you're not going back right. to Alcatraz. What are you going to like no go become an accountant? right i mean yeah like what are they doing maybe they're doing some like (laughs) manual labor i feel like maybe they'd be like good like in the woods like i don't know something just kind of mysterious something hands-on they're crafty men you know maybe they were lumberjacks in seattle probably that's like adds up that's like what i picture in my heart so technically this is unsolved but in my deviant heart I think they escaped. I think their raft worked and they managed to get out of the country long enough to come up with a solid plan to settle down, walk the straight and narrow and go unnoticed. Right now, Frank Morris would be 97, John England would be 93, and Clarence England would be 92. So I don't think it's realistic realistic to think like they're all still alive. Uh, but I do think they made it. And there were like right. never human remains found. So that's pretty compelling to me. I'm what do you think? totally convinced. I agree 100%. I think that they did escape and were successful. And I think that the police and FBI told everybody that, oh, they're likely dead, like an officially where they didn't make mm-hmm. it because they wanted them to think, oh, they aren't looking for us anymore. We can just, you know, be sloppy and they're not going to like they wanted them to slip up. And reveal that they're still out there because I heard the same thing about the, you know, the flowers and the letters and everything Mm -hmm. with mom. And at the funeral, they were saying the mom, was it her nephew or like a son or something like that? One of the family members was interviewed on this show. It's called Unexplained. It's so good. And, um, he was saying that, yeah, like there were these 
two strange women, these two strange men. But then they were immediately like got got all these questions from the FBI afterwards. Like who were these people? So like they were interviewed, like they, the FBI was still looking for them. And they're like, why would you look for them if you've announced that they're dead? Like that doesn't make any sense. So I think that they were trying to get them to like, they didn't want the public to know. Yeah. They were like, we don't want people to think that they can just escape from Alcatraz and we want them to slip up. And then I do think that the Brazil photo is totally just a diversion because I'm looking at it right now. (laughs) Cause when you're describing it, I was like, Oh, it's like a paparazzi shot. Like they're, they're caught in Brazil. They're just literally standing there next to a mound, like staring at the camera and they're posing. They're posing. It doesn't, it's not at all like, oh, they didn't know their photo was taken. But if they're truly on the run and they're like these master, mastermind criminals who have <laughs> evaded detection for all this time, they're just going to be like on tourist vacation. Like, oh, let's get a picture in front of the rock. Like, right. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I don't, I just don't think so. Yeah. It is pretty wacky. I, yeah. The diversion theory works for me unless they just Mm -hmm. felt like so comfortable they were like yeah like we're safe here like send this picture to our mom like that kind of vibe but I don't know I do think that there is a good chance that like the FBI determined that they were dead because it was like a huge failing of like Alcatraz if these men escaped And, like, this is where, like, the most dangerous prisoners were. And, like, if the people of San Francisco, the people of California, the people of the country thought that these people could get out, that would be a PR nightmare. Well, yeah, and it could inspire more people to attempt to escape. Like, now that they know that they're, it's like when they're like, oh, the Titanic is unsinkable. And it's like, actually, like it is you shouldn't have said that so many times like constantly saying that Alcatraz is like the unescapable island there's Mm -hmm. no way out and then oh actually there is yeah you jinxed it (laughs) and I don't think they want to inspire anybody to attempt it again now that they know that they were wrong yeah Um, but I do think because I went to San Francisco this year for the first time when I visited you I went there right after and I walked on the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw like I didn't go to Alcatraz but I could see it and I'm like it's so weirdly close to no yeah it and i in the show that i was watching they were saying like that was part of the part of the whole thing like part of the torture was that you could like hear the city oh. you can smell like the food like you can like you know that it's all right there but you yeah, can't but you can't be a part it. of it yeah and yeah. and that also must like by saying that it's completely indestructible or like impenetrable that's probably what makes people in San Francisco feel safe, like having the Island right right there. Um, It was so interesting. Another thing that I heard on that show was another theory, which (gasps) was a little, so uh, they were talking about the history of Alcatraz Island and how I don't remember the name of the indigenous community that like lived there before i can't remember but essentially it was like the island was also in the past used as like basically the same function like an exile or like a graveyard basically like if you were sick or dying like you'd go there Mm -hmm. um but they were saying that there was some sort of like 
curse of this island that oh basically there was some sort of like these spirits around and one of the guys who escaped was like claiming to someone else on the island like one of the other prisoners that he was like communicating with somebody like a ghost and they were saying that you will know when to leave when the birds stop flying in this certain direction because the birds are always flying around and when they're not that means that like it's safe to go and so they're saying that that is how he they determined when exactly to leave was because the birds weren't flying yeah so that's something that i mean i totally butchered it there's so many other so many details in there that i just did not oh my god say at all i don't remember but watch this Oh, it's so good. I'm wondering if I heard that also on a podcast because I, I feel like I, I did just watch that show and I also listened to a podcast recently about it because it is so <laughs> fascinating and I'm going to listen to so this one too. Um, yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been uh, a long time ago, like I was a child when I went, but it is just so, it's like so like humbling and like spooky and like just really interesting. Uh, I'll maybe I'll find a picture of me there for the fans. For the <gasps> oh viewers. my gosh, I would love that. Um, I also, as a child, I shouldn't have been watching like, but like you know, like uh, those like real like ghost shows. Like I can't like Ghost Hunters or whatever. Ghost like, Adventures. Yeah. Yeah. So like there was definitely an episode of one of those like at Alcatraz, and it like spooked me like so bad as a child. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I've always been interested in it. It always reminds me of Shutter Island. And I love that movie. Oh, yeah. With Leo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That one is great. All of our episodes have been over an hour since we've come back. I don't know what's up with that. But, like, we have a lot to say, we have, I guess. We have so much to say. These stories are just getting better and better. Truly. And, yeah, I'm sorry that they're so long. I have gotten complaints in the past from my mom. And she complains about the lengths but haters gonna hate feel free <laughs> to listen to it in two parts everybody or just like it's true yeah power through it you can listen to it however whatever way brings you joy we'll post at deviant little darlings on instagram and you can also email us at deviant little darlings at gmail.com we love suggestions i know we have so many episodes now but if you go back we had a lot of episodes with suggestions from our dads and from some of katie's friends so if you hear anything that's interesting, it doesn't have to be true crime or ghosties or anything like that, but obviously we like that stuff. But definitely <laughs> let us know any story that you think is just wild and needs to be told, and we'll look into it. We'll tell it. Please. Also, you can always DM us on Instagram. I saw a girl, Alex, a.k.a. Olivia's sister, DM'd us something <laughs> on Instagram the other day. So oh we'll gosh, check yeah. it out. We'll investigate. I didn't open it or respond. So I opened it and didn't respond. <laughs> okay. So sorry, Alex. <laughs> she called me out. She was like, I DM'd you guys. And I was like, oh my gosh. I, I The Instagram app has been on and off my phone. Like I keep deleting it's okay. it. okay. You don't need it. I'll take care of it. <laughs> Our 70 followers oh really, uh, really are diehard. So what can I say? Um. Okay. Also, you can find us on anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Some of my fave suggestions, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I think Google has a podcast service. Uh, You can listen to it anywhere. So please, please do. And if you can, give us a little review because we like you. We hope you like us. It's like dating, you know.
oh my gosh yeah like tell us how you feel and yeah we will see you next time with even cooler stories if they i don't know if they get any cooler but like we'll find something episode 50 is coming you guys oh my gosh yeah 50 Ooh, we have to do something really good we gotta do something mm. special maybe that's when we bring in our all of our guests oh my gosh we do all of our guests <gasps> okay we're gonna have a brainstorming session we're gonna we're gonna yeah. do it right this is gonna be good i feel it in my <laughs> yeah. bones okay all right well until next time later bye